be generous of spirit and be generous mm-hmm. with your your time, your energy, your resources to try to make the world a better place in your own immediate environment. And if we all do that, or at least a, a critical mass, we can start this global spiritual revolution and we can, you know, maybe welcome a new spiritual renaissance where we might have a shot at co-creating an optimal future. Hello, I'm Julie Kroll. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. Welcome. Your journey of conscious evolution continues right here, right now. Here's a quote from the book I'm holding. Imagine if we all knew for certain there was something more than this world and this single lifetime, and that God exists, and that we are loved beyond measure by God. Imagine. I've often wondered the same thing. What would our world be like if we all had transpersonal, metaphysical, and mystical experiences? And what if we could share these spiritually transformative experiences with others? I've had many of these experiences, but one of the most profound and formative was when I literally shared the miracle experience with another human being, a real life witness that could describe the mysterious details of our shared divine encounter. I wrote about it in the book Ancestors. So I won't go into detail now, but what I do want to share is how transformative it was to have another human witness the unbelievable in their own way. So back to that statement, what would humanity be like if we all knew for certain there was something more than this world and that God exists and that we are loved? Would it create a global spiritual revolution? What would it tell us about humanity's potential and our future? Well, stay with us. We're going to explore this very thing. I invite you to take a few conscious breaths, bring your awareness to your heart, relax, open your mind, and settle into your essential wholeness. As I introduce my co-host, Dr. Paul Mills is Professor of Public Health and Family Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He has over 400 scientific publications in the fields of pharmacology, oncology, cardiology, psychoneuroimmunology, behavioral medicine, and integrative health. He is the author of the book, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Our guest today is John Audette, the author of Loved by the Light, True Stories of Divine Intervention and Providence. His professional career spanned over three decades of senior executive positions in hospital and hospice administration and physician practice management. Audette's interest in spiritually transformative experiences began at the age of eight when he heard his first account of a near-death experience from his best friend's mother. His interest was dormant until 1974 when he met the world-renowned Raymond Moody. Dr. Moody was a medical student at the time, just beginning research, which later led to the publication of Life After Life. Later, another associate, 
Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, encouraged Audette to move forward with his idea to form an association focused on spiritually transformative experiences for the experiencers, researchers, and the interested public, which later resulted in the formation of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. And listen to this. He's the founder of Eternia. The tagline reads, The Convergence of Science and Spirituality for Personal and Global Transformation. I love that. And John, if you don't know why I'm saying listen to this, hopefully after this show, you're going to go, oh my gosh, I really get why you guys love that. So welcome to the show, John. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We have a traditional first question here on the show because this is a part of the Dr. Julie show, All Things Connected, that's been running almost 10 years now. And I've been twisting and turning this traditional first question, depending on the guest. And your book is filled with incredible stories and examples of spiritually transformative experiences. And you yourself share eight personal angel stories throughout your lifetime. It's it's incredible. And now with the publication of this book, you're focused on helping more people to really understand these experiences in an effort to support humanity through these challenging times. So I want to talk about all of that more later. But first, in the spirit of this show's intention to normalize the non-ordinary and being part of the Dr. Julie show, All Things Connected, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, what does All Things Connected mean to you? Well, it means universality. It means non-dualism, unitive consciousness, to borrow your phrase, oneness of all things. Uh, We all come from the same source. We all return to the same source. And that's the whole point. We just live in the illusion that we're separate. And the challenge has to be for all of us to overcome that illusion and to see how connected we are to one another, to everything, to a blade of grass, to a piece of wood, a rock, uh, a drop of water, the sky, the cosmos. It's all part of the same majestic whole. And the sooner we can somehow become cognizant of that, I think a lot of problems will be solved. I love the phrase. I'm going to turn this over to Paul, but I love that phrase, the same majestic hole. I love that, the same majestic hole. Paul, do you have a question you want to kick us off with? I do. And John, I just so appreciated what you said. It was beautiful in multiple domains. And one of those domains regarding the uh, the universality of love. And that gets me to the title of your book, Loved by the Light, which I so very much enjoyed because there's such a fundamental important message within just the title of the book alone. And as I understand it, that message is basically, we are implicitly loved by the light, that a massive presence of light itself is love. And I was hoping you could speak to that a bit. Well, it's apparent that everything that exists is Love by the light. Uh, Life itself is a form of unconditional love. I have a body. We all have a body. And that body was given to me. It's given to all of us. And the earth that I walk upon was given to me. The air that I breathe, that we all breathe, uh, the food, the sunlight, it's all bestowed without 
the need for reciprocity, without the need for uh, any kind of quid pro quo. Uh, and if that's not love, I don't know what is. And it's given to everyone and to everything, uh, regardless who they are or where they're coming from or what they may have done. And at the quantum level, we don't have subatomic particles fighting with each other about their their relative position in the atom. You know, they, they do what they do based on the divine blueprint to support all of life in the cosmos. And it seems like the whole apparatus that Source has created exists as one big demonstration of unconditional love. I don't know how else to, to describe it. In fact, many of the great physicists have, have said that um, the organizing principle of the cosmos is unconditional love. Uh, so, you know, I had an original title that I was quite proud of called Affirming God. Uh, the subtitle has always remained the same, but Affirming God to me was the message that needed to be communicated. I was shocked and surprised when many of my friends objected to the title. And then a publisher, a well-known publisher who wanted to make it their lead title in the fall, also objected and wanted to change because they said that use of the word God would be off-putting to a lot of people. My attitude was, well, I'm sorry about that, but... You know, if it's off-putting, then they're probably not going to like the book. So, you know, truth in advertising, it's all about God. It's a love letter to God, which is why I released it on Valentine's Day for the symbolic importance of it. And um, uh, I, I wrote it after a great deal of vacillation, back and forth, tug of war, because I'm a private person and I tell a lot of very personal stories, but I felt that the world's going in the wrong direction. And it, and because we don't quite yet understand the oneness of all things, and we still debate whether there's a God, we still debate whether there is survival of consciousness beyond bodily death. To me, these things are axiomatic. They have been for many years. And I've just been trying to figure out how we can bring mainstream humanity and the rulers uh, of the wealthy, the politically powerful, to the same degree of understanding so that we can start getting on a, a better compass heading for uh, an optimal future. So I, I debated what to call the book, if not affirming God. And I, I really kind of meditated about it and title came to me and I said, well, surely it's been taken, <laughs> you know, because it's such a, an obvious title. I, I know Embraced by the Light, Betty Eady, Saved by the Light, Danny and Brinkley. And I, I looked it up and I couldn't believe it, but no, nobody had used it. That's how it became the title. And I think it was an even better title than what I had before, because I don't think it'll offend anyone and um, it'll draw more people from who sit on the fence perhaps. And then when my good friend, Virginia Hummel, who's helped me a lot with the book, came up with the cover art and we put the two together, I said, you know, this is what it was always meant to be. So that's kind of how it evolved. Well, John, I appreciated hearing the, the whole, whole ideology of the book title, but I just want to add again, I really resonated with it because there are so many religious traditions around the, the planet where light is associated with God. 
and implicit with people experiencing the light itself without any other characteristics, yeah. they have the presence of God contained within it. And beautifully so, there's also that, sec- that sense and knowingness of being unconditionally loved. And for me, that's one of the most important transformative experiences a person can have because it puts aside all doubts, whether they are loved, whether there's a reason for their existence. So I, I appreciate that about the title of your book and, of course, the, the subsequent content that I've read through it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul, for reading <laughs> it so quickly. And I know you didn't have a whole lot of time uh, to uh, all of that. I appreciate it so much. And I, I thank God for the title because it was, I woke up one morning with it, and I, I have to believe it came through spirit. Uh, and it, it just seems to work uh, very well. So I, I hope it has universal appeal. You know, it's funny. I drilled down on all of this with the whole thing about why people were offended by the word God. Um, I think the majority of people on the planet believe in God and they believe in life after death, or at least they profess to, uh, at least on an intellectual level. And so I'm like, well, what's the problem? And then I realized that, you know, church membership is, uh, there's a great deal of attrition and um, there's a lot of anger out there uh, about traditional religion. I, I read a book uh, a while back called History of God by Karen Armstrong, and she goes into great detail about all of this. And uh, so I, I'm trying it, – it's really an effort. The book is, is essentially my way of trying to demystify God and uh, uh, enlightenment. Enlightenment to me means to basically be a purveyor of love to the fullest extent one can. And I believe in definition of terms because, you know, you say God, you say love, what do you, what do you mean? You know? Well, to me, love is compassion, it's kindness, it's caring, it's generosity, it's giving. I think most of us understand love when we are recipients of it. And we certainly know when we're lacking it. Uh, so it's not a hard concept to grasp. If we can just get our arms around the uh, concept that God is love. Uh, that's the primary attribute that I think most religions can embrace and most people can embrace, the ones who profess to believe in God, that God is love and that we are loved non-judgmentally and unconditionally. God doesn't dispense love in a discriminating way only on those that are following the righteous path um, it's given universally, as I say, without a quid pro quo. So to me, it all works well, and I'm glad you resonate with it. It means a great deal. Thank you. The thing that I want to expand on, I just want us to pause for a minute because we hear this all the time, John, and this message isn't changing humanity at large. God is love. We're we're loved unconditionally. God is light. Light and love are the same, you know, and as much as the sun shines on us, it's the same way that it always shot, you know, so we've all had these experiences with light and with love and this, the peace that surpasses all understanding, the calm, the, but there's something else. And it's hard to put into language what this love you're speaking of, what makes it different than our human love? Because we have stories about love. We get disappointed in relationships. Our mutual friend, Jude Curavan, is researching this unitive consciousness, and, and she's literally calling it the science of love now. And many of her cohorts are starting to use 
this term, the science of love. But I'm just wondering if we could just dig deeper and Paul, feel free to jump in or two is what is this experience of this kind of love that makes it different from our human experience of love? You, you said some adjectives of compassion and, and other things, but there's something else about it. What, what is that quality of these experiences? Please, John, will you begin? And then I'll follow up. Well, love comes in many forms. Human love has a lot of things associated with it that would make a sharp contrast with divine love. Um, human love is often possessive, controlling, conditional, uh, and it's speaking to the needs of the person, to egocentric needs. You know, usually you know, in romantic relationships, there is... You know, there are power plays that go on and who's going to be the dominant one. Uh, and, you know, relationships these days are very challenging uh, on a lot of levels. It's because the love that's in those relationships is doesn't come close to approximating divine love. For those who haven't experienced divine love, I would venture to say it's because they just don't have the vocabulary or the frame of reference to identify it or recognize it. But divine love is with us at all times. It's ever present. It's omnipresent. Um, it's ubiquitous. I would suggest, you know, focusing on a flower or a bird uh, or a tree or some beautiful vista in nature to feel God's love. Uh, God's love is expressed through natural beauty but not just through the natural beauty. Sometimes it's expressed energetically. I can be walking around, you know, just in a normal state of consciousness, and all of a sudden I might see a a beautiful ibis bird in flight or something, and it'll just trigger a shift, and I'll immediately be connected to divine energy, and I'll be getting goosebumps, that, well, what I call goosebumps that are more powerful than goosebumps and they sweep from head to toe. That's kind of a kiss from the other side. And it's glorious. It's, it's beyond orgasmic for me. Um, and when I meditate or go streaming or forest bathing, those feelings are even more pronounced. So human love can't compare to that. That love that I experience in these, um, meditative states is of a completely different quality and caliber. I don't know of uh, any relationship in my life where uh, the love that is exchanged between humans can, can approximate uh, the, the, love, the divine love. And that's the whole point, to help people enter these altered states where they, they check out of ordinary consciousness uh, through meditation or through one means or another. And, uh, they open themselves up to this communion and connection with God. It's available to anyone. And I make the point in the book, yes, I am loved by the light. And I've, I've had many, many, many experiences to, to um, confirm that. But so too is everyone else equally. God doesn't play favorites. The same love is accessible and available to everyone if they open their hearts to it. Doesn't need to be in a temple or a synagogue or an ashram or a mosque or a church. It can be anywhere. It's just a matter of opening one's heart and one's mind to it. 
Beautiful. I so appreciate that you spoke earlier about this world of apparent duality that we reside in, and you just used the word being the conditionality of it. Yeah, and when we're in those states, we don't have that same capacity. But I also appreciate from what you're saying, I think implicitly, is that we human beings are capable of experiencing it, which is what we're speaking about. And and we know that it is possible for a human being to develop to a place where they're able to purely channel and reflect that and offer it to another human being. And I think that's one of the great goals of, of the human evolution, this, this journey that humanity is on at this time. Well, it's why I sort of closed the book toward the well, part three anyway, with a God for a day exercise. I'm encouraging people to know God through trying to imitate or emulate God, at least God's love, to try to enter a space of being a purveyor of unconditional love uh, anonymously without any ego involvement. Um, and I give some examples, but the whole point of those examples is to encourage people to use their own creativity because there's, there's no limit to the ways in which we can express love, not just toward other human beings, but toward animals, trees, uh, Mother Earth. The world's crying out for love right now. It's, it's very troubled and getting more so by the day. So I'm, I really wrote this book as an effort to help the pendulum swing the other way, to take the mystery out of enlightenment, take the mystery out of God, creator, source, and to try to make God more accessible to everyone, uh, just simply by opening their hearts to love. And to do so without ego, to go out where somebody, where, where, where you're unknown, where no one knows who you are, and uh, in a place that maybe is unfamiliar, and just to do good deeds, acts of kindness, limited by one's own imagination and resources. I recently, I, I don't talk about my God for a day experiences, but I, the other day, well, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, I found a wallet and i just saying this as an example. I opened it up. I found it on the street and I, I opened it up. It was intact. I had about $230 in cash, a lot of credit cards. And I saw that it belonged to a young, a young man. And uh, I immediately went through it to find a phone number so I could get in touch with him. And um, I did, but it was an office number. The office was closed for the day. So I reached out to him the next day and I happened to be going over there near his office. So I just dropped it off to him, but he was so appreciative, so relieved, so ecstatic. The, the look on his face and the expression of gratitude just lifted me, you know, beyond description, much more joy and satisfaction than I could ever have derived from taking the $230 or so that was in the wallet and throwing the rest of it in the trash can. So it's just a small example of how you can bring love and light to people and how when you do that, it's a greater high. I mean, I, I can only speak for myself. My experiences when I did God for a Day, the rewards I got every time I tried to express uh, God's love uh, far uh, and above outweighed any material reward I could have possibly received if my if there had been ego involvement or if my identity had been known. 
So this is what I'm trying to encourage people to do is you want to grow close to God, emulate God. You know, they say that, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery, you know, and then God doesn't need flattery. I'm not suggesting that we imitate God for that reason. But but by doing that, truly, there is a divine energy that comes into you. As soon as you declare that intention and uh, engage in that exercise with sincerity, you get all kinds of support from the universe. And that's when the communion starts. So it's not a big mystery. It's, you know, Ben Franklin came up with this way back when in his 13 virtues. He said one of the 13 virtues was imitate Jesus and Socrates. And what he meant by that was, uh, you know, be generous of spirit and be generous mm-hmm. with your your time, your energy, your resources to try to make the world a better place in your own immediate environment. And if we all do that, or at least a critical mass, we can start this global spiritual revolution and we can, you know, maybe welcome a new age of enlightenment, a new spiritual renaissance, where we might have a shot at co-creating an optimal future for Earth and all its inhabitants. So I decided to sacrifice my privacy and tell a bunch of really highly personal stories, uh, including the angel encounter stories, simply to make this point, uh, to try to awaken more people to what I was awakened to. I started this uh, process very much agnostic and... um, you know, it changed me 180 degrees. Let's, John, let's go there because this is an important context for this conversation today is your experiences. And I know our listeners would love to hear all of them. And I encourage you to find this book and, and read about it. But the let's talk about the eight angel experiences. And I want to just point out one to you, if you could share, because we, we don't have time for you to talk about all these angel experiences. Um, you I think you referred to them as not a near-death experience, but uh, I don't remember how you said it, but it's preventing a near tragedy is what these did. The one story in particular that I think is fascinating, um, and it's why I started the show the way I did, because you had a witness that had his own miracle story in it, It is the one time you were behind the wheel, you were 16 years old, driving home late at night. And literally the car is moved and other witnesses experience miracles along the way. Can you just share that one angel experience with us? I think it's super powerful. Sure. That happened in the fall of 1968. And that was my third angel encounter. I did not define it as an angel encounter at the time. But the Florida State Trooper, Florida Highway Patrol Trooper, who pulled me over, he quickly said it was the work of angels. I said it several times, actually. But what happened was I was driving back at my father's Studebaker, turquoise in color, what a, what a car that was. And um, I was, I'd uh, been on a date with my love of my life at the time, um, first love, Christine, and I uh, was on the Palmetto Expressway. Uh, and I did not realize that I was asleep at the wheel, but I, I literally was. I knew my eyes were closing, but I thought they were closing only briefly for a few seconds. And every time I opened them and looked at the road, I was 
operating the vehicle normally and within my lane and everything was fine. Well, when I was finally pulled over, apparently the state trooper had been following me for miles, trying to get me to pull over. (laughs) I did not hear the siren. I did not hear the loudspeaker or the horn. I heard nothing. When he pulled me over, he ordered me out of the car. He was very, uh, let's just say, angry and uh, perturbed. And he, he said, you know, put your hands on the hood, feet apart. He frisked me. And, of course, there was nothing on me. And then he asked me to look at look into his eyes, and he shined the flashlight. And he said, have you been drinking? And I said, no, I don't drink. I'm only 16. And, he said, are you on drugs? I said, no, I'm not on any drugs. I said, why, why did you pull me over? Why did I pull you over? Why did it take so long for you to pull over? I've been, I, I think he said it was at least 10 to 15 miles that he had been following me, trying to get me to pull over. And I did not know. I said, look, I pulled over as soon as I saw your lights and heard your siren. As soon as I was aware of that, I pulled over. Well, there was a man who pulled over in front of him in a, Volkswagen Fastback, and he was a man in his, I would say, mid-30s. His wife and children were in the car, and he was livid. Uh, he wanted to kill me. He wanted to wring my neck. He was, he, he was calling me all kinds of names. Who is this guy, and why does he want, you know, the death of me? And the trooper says, you get back in your car before I arrest you, too. I'll never forget that because that arrest you too. What is it? He's going to arrest me? What did I do? I was clueless about why he pulled me over. So he said, he said, what's your problem? You're not on drugs. You're not drinking. Were you asleep? No, sir. I was not asleep. Well, how do you account for what your car did? You ran many, many people off the road um, along the Palmetto Expressway. I was heading northbound, and I said, how many did I run off the road? He said, I don't know, but at least 10, at least 10. And nobody got hurt. There was no property damage. There was no uh, no injury. I don't know how that happened because you were literally all over the road. And then he said, how did you manage to get your car to jump back on the expressway from almost going over the 103rd Street overpass? I said, I, I don't I don't really know what you're talking about. I'm not aware of running anybody off the road. I'm not aware of being asleep at the wheel. I have no conscious recollection of any of this. Well, long story short, he described for me everything that he saw. And he said, this man wants to kill you because you nearly killed him and his family. Now, I think Spirit was watching out for me that night and on several other occasions. Truly, if I had hurt anybody, I couldn't have lived with myself. Uh, I probably would have been self-destructive at that point if I had caused serious injury to anyone. I'm not proud of this, you know, but I I did have a problem earlier in life with falling asleep at the wheel, particularly in distance driving. And it's a very dangerous thing, worse than drunk driving. And he didn't, you know, he, he said he had witnessed some things that night that he had never seen before in his entire career. I think he was a man probably in his late forties. He was off duty. He was on his way home. Um, and he wasn't going to pull me over and, until he saw that I was such a, 
a danger to myself and to others. And because everybody else on the expressway wanted him to, uh, to, to neutralize this threat. And so, uh, I said, well, I'm glad you pulled me over. I thought you might be mistaking me for someone else. He said, oh, no, no, no. no one, there's no other car like this on the, on the highway. I can assure you of that. He said, I saw some things tonight that I've never seen before and probably will never see again. You must have some, have some really powerful guardian angels. He said, your car literally floated back onto the expressway from nearly going over the guardrails. You would have been a goner for sure. So... Um, he wrote me a ticket for reckless driving. Um, he didn't want to. He was sort of apologetic about it. But he said, this man is not going to leave until I write you the citation for the most serious offense possible. And um, I, he, wants his, he wants me to take his information because he wants to see you in court. He wants to impress upon the judge the fact that you almost killed him and his family. I said, well, I'd like to go apologize to him. He said, no, stay away from him. Just stay away from him, and um, I'll let him know how sorry you feel. But I think you're wide awake now. I think you can continue, um, and I think the angels are going to make sure that you get home safely. That's what happened. And then when you know it, there's a sense of humor there with the universe because I'm a Beatles fan. I admit it. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm very proud of being a Beatles fan for 1964 on. And... Um, at that time, I think I think Drive My Car had come out maybe a year or two before. And I don't know, 10, 15 minutes into my drive home, there was you know, not too many radio stations at the time, but the WQAM 560 AM was the rock and roll station. And Drive My Car came on by the Beatles. And I had a lot of fun making up my own lyrics about the angels driving my car, you know, so baby, you can drive my cars, angels, you can drive my car. It was a fascinating story. Yeah. I, I just, I would love to dig into all of those stories. This is a follow-up there out of eight of them. Three of them were the driving, um, the sleepy driving, but I think all but one or two had to do with a vehicle or an automobile, like you're in one and you even had an extra one that you write about that you don't claim as one of your eight when you were with Raymond Moody and his angels intervened. So that really there's nine of them, but many are have to do with automobiles. Do you have, do you have any intuition or insight into why you think your angel interventions were in an automobile. Do you have have you ever thought about that? Well, no, not really. And I didn't think of all of these experiences as angel encounters in real time. Uh, I mean, this all came together much later uh, through uh, the input of a great a great many psychic shamans and mediums who kind of filled in uh, the blanks for me. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, you know, there's a real pattern here. And, um, you know, of the eight encounters, well, the nine with Raymond, seven were life, involved life-threatening situations. One of them was a snake, a coral snake that almost bit me um, when, I, when I was a young boy growing up in Fort Lauderdale. The eighth one that was not life-saving was just a manifestation in my bedroom one night, uh, an Indian who turned out to be an angel guide, as I later found out. But um, why they involved a car in the other instances, 
I, I can't I can't answer that. I don't know. But I can tell you, I wished I had had a smartphone back in those days to take a picture of the Volkswagen Bug, what it looked like. It was crumpled like a beer can. I should have been squashed like a bug underfoot. And my friend Will who was sitting next to me, but we were not even not, not even a bruise. And the whole time that car was rolling over, I felt like I was in a womb, in bubble wrap. You know, I, I not not even a scratch. So. I can't answer why uh, your question, you know, why they involve cars, uh, but they, they did. I'm, I now know why I had all of these extraordinary experiences, not just the angel encounters that I write about in part one, but all the other things that happened, the other extraordinary events in part two, which to me were just as miraculous and uh, exceptional. So I do I do make the point that I did not have a near-death experience. I never left my body. Um, I never had a loss of respiration or heartbeat. I just came perilously close to death and would have died traumatically if it hadn't been for divine intervention. I'm clear about that now. And I, you know, I'm an evidence-based, data-driven person. I'm only interested in truth and facts. And my opinions are all fluid. Um, I go where the evidence goes. And I don't mind changing my point of view if that's where the knowledge takes me. But in this case, I have looked for alternative explanations that could explain away uh, what happened to me time and time and time again. And there just isn't anything other than uh, attributing it to divine intervention and providence. I think a lot of people have these kinds of things happen to them. Uh, we can all look back on life and and think about our lucky breaks that we were fortunate to experience. And maybe we don't call them angel encounters like I didn't. I mean, I didn't wake up to all of that until much later. But, um, you know, the other, I think it was, um, I forget which number it is. Now. I think it's angel encounter five and, uh, when Archangel Michael uh, appears as a hitchhiker, <laughs> you know, I just uh, dressed all in white, you know, was as about to run off the road into a ravine. I knew there was something unusual about this guy. And I knew there was something surreal about that moment in time with him. But it wasn't until when um, I was uh, fortunate to be in a session with a very gifted medium and Archangel Michael comes through, and I'd heard this so many times before that I got sort of feisty and had to ask challenging questions, and she answered everyone correctly except one. Uh, I don't know how she does that other than channeling from the the source. So, you know, um, I'm just blessed to have had these experiences because they brought me from agnosticism, uh, skepticism, doubt, wonder, uh, to a, a person of uh, unwavering conviction based on data and evidence, not faith. It takes a lot of courage to believe in something, to have faith in something. It takes no courage whatsoever for me to say that I hold these convictions in an enduring fashion based on knowledge. Knowledge requires critical thinking, not faith. I don't have to accept anything on faith. I've been shown time and time again 
that this is the true nature of reality. God is real. The afterlife is real. And we are blessed every moment of every day by the love and by the light. And I, my job now with publishing this book is to help people come to the same awareness. It's very probable that many people have these kinds of experience. And I think perhaps the blessings for you hasn't been that you've had them as much as you were able to get awareness that they had occurred. Because within that, then you understood what had happened and the importance of it. And then that linkage with, with the angelic kingdom, as we're calling it. But I too suspect people have many of these during the course of their lives, perhaps not eight, but having such experiences, but they never have the opportunity to realize what happened. And therefore, they're not understanding the significance of it, uh, their relationship implicitly to the spiritual world, and their life just goes on and they think, oh, that was interesting, or I was fortunate. I don't know what you think about that, but I think many of your blessings come that you've had the ability to build a great awareness around it and then to bring messages to other people through your book and your other other work that these phenomena occur and their role in, in our lives. Yes, thank you, Paul. That's, that's my biggest hope in writing this book, that it will help people become more sensitized to the fact that they're surrounded by divinity each moment of each day. If they, I mean, you know, when they take their next breath, for example, what exactly are they doing? What is breath? You don't see it. You trust that it's there, but we're just sort of unconscious about these things. But people say to me, there's no God. I say, you know, look, go ponder an acorn and just contemplate that acorn and just know that every, what becomes of that acorn in time, every root, every piece of bark, every stem, every branch, every leaf, every other acorn that that tree is going to produce in its lifetime is all in that little tiny thing. How does that happen? How does this galaxy form from humble stardust? How does somebody like Ludwig von Beethoven emerge from the union of sperm and egg, a zygote? That's, how does that zygote contain everything this man ever did throughout his life? Every symphony, every concerto, every sonata, etc., that he ever composed. How does that happen from that little zygote? Now, if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. And this is the whole point. We're, we're living life in a very unconscious way, most of us. And I hope my book, if, any, if nothing else, I hope it will uh, give people greater sensitivity uh, to what Einstein said so long ago. He said, either everything is a miracle or nothing is. Well, of course, he was saying that everything is a miracle. And, you know, I, I appreciate your book title. I haven't read your book, but I'm planning on it, Paul. Uh, he is one of those scientists who started out as a materialist and then ended up being a bit of a mystic toward the end of his life because he peered as deeply as one could into the fabric of creation and came away, you know, spooky action at a distance and saying things like, well, you know, there's too much elegance and intelligence and precision for this to be happenstance or accidental. We're surrounded by miracles. Every day, life is a miracle. What's going on in the body right now? The fact that I'm having this conversation, able to articulate these thoughts, that's a miracle. So we need to wake up uh, as a species 
it's coming close to the midnight hour on planet Earth. You know, I find current circumstances to be uh, unacceptable, intolerable, and inexcusable. And I just can't curse the darkness. So I wrote the book, you know, to try to light the candle and to try to get people to realize what a miracle life is, all life, how sacred uh, creation is, and how we're all part of the same elegant whole. Same God that made me made every other human being and every other creature that walks the earth. And so why should they be my enemy and why should I be in competition with them when they come from the same source creator? So, you know, we have to find a way as a species to move from the every man for himself paradigm to the all for one and one for all paradigm. And we don't, I don't feel we have a lot of time to do that. So I, I have to thank Ken Ring, Dr. Ken Ring, who's written many books on near-death experiences. He's co-founder of um, IANS.org as well. And um, he was the one who encouraged me to write this book. He, he wanted me to simply tell the one angel story, the one about um, the hitchhiker all in white. And uh, I said, well, there are seven others. He said, well, tell them all. And I, I, I asked if I'd write, written them down, and I hadn't. So I wrote them all out for him. And uh, he said it was riveting. He said it was com- compulsive reading. He said, this is amazing. You need to publish this. I said, it was not just the angel encounters, Ken. It was all this other stuff, too. He said, well, write that up. So that's part two. And then, you know, of course, part three of Love by the Light is what do I think is the meaning and significance of all this? And that, to me, is the most important part of the book. The stories are great, entertaining, and enthralling. But to me, the rubber meets the road in part three, which is, okay, let's get on now with accepting as a species that we're spiritual beings here for a very, very short time, blinking of an eyelid, that this body, while you're in it, may seem like the end-all and be-all. It's truly only a flash in a pan. And... um you know, it's gone very, there's not a lot of difference between 17 years of age and 70 years of age. It goes by, you know, snap of the finger. The sooner we realize that there's much more to who we are than the physical body, the sooner we can get on with the important work of, okay, well, what does it mean that, you know, we're eternal beings and that there is a God and that unconditional love is the meaning and purpose of our existence? How can we put that into practical application quickly so that we can reverse these disturbing trends? I, I want to follow up on that because you, you brought in the near-death experience, and we really haven't talked about that yet. But you, you've worked with Raymond Moody. You're friends with him. You were friends with him for a very long time. You worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, so the, the grieving, the death, the dying, the hospice work, the shared death experience work. And yes, it's time to get on with it and, and let us get serious. But what do you think the influence of that work? You haven't had your own near-death experience, but I know my near-death experience has definitely created the trajectory for my work in the world. Like it it was that influential from a very young age. How does near death experience and shared death and your work with Elizabeth and the grief and death and dying process, how does all of that play into your passion now? And, And even you 
establishing two different organizations because of it? Yes. Well, it's a great question. And I, I spent the entire book uh, elaborating on that question. And I say, you know, did, did I choose this work or did this work choose me? It was all basically a setup, you know, from the age of eight on. Uh, well, really, even before the age of eight, because, you know, I, I was always sensitive to human suffering and I was always trying to figure out how I could make a difference. Uh, I was never motivated by money, fame, popularity or any of those things, I, uh, material possessions. I was motivated by how we can make the world a better place. So I saw when when Mrs. Waters came back from the hospital, I saw her that first time. And I, I mean, she was luminous. I could see the change in her. The woman was glowing and uh, she was bubbly. She was effervescent. Uh, she'd been to heaven and, and back. She had a near-death experience, um, met God and the angels, and she told me about it. And I was eight years old at the time. Um, my best friend, Mike, her son, was very concerned because he thought his mother had become a Jesus freak, and uh, he wanted his old mother back. Uh, he was happy that she survived the near-death uh, episode, but very concerned that she had undergone this profound transformation. So from the age of eight, I was my pump was primed to pay attention to these exceptional experiences, and I, I, I talk in the book about my other best friend Jimmy Madonna. His brother Dominic was like a, a much beloved big brother to me, and he was uh, sent to Vietnam. He, he, I think he was drafted and then he enlisted in the army, and um, he was killed in Vietnam in August of 1969, and his death was uh, very traumatic for me. So I ended up as an 18-year-old after high school graduation enlisting in the Army, wanting infantry and wanting to volunteer for Vietnam to help the poor oppressed people of South Vietnam and to avenge my my friend's death. At the time, I, I was sort of naive, uh, like every other 18-year-old, and I wasn't asking the critical questions. And I assumed my government was saw this as a just cause, and um, that was good enough for me. So I, I enlisted in the Army, and that's what brought me to Augusta, Georgia. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of synchronicities around all of that that enabled me to meet Raymond Moody. When I found out what he was doing, I mean, it was the ring of destiny like I had never heard before. My life's path became... Apparent now. I've never made my my occupation has nothing to do with this work. I've never made money doing this work. I, I as you as you read my bio, it's all it's been healthcare primarily, the arts and public broadcasting as well. And I never could figure out a way to get this work funded to the level it needs to be. Not IANS and not Eternia after IANS. Um, it's people just don't seem to get the big picture. I got the big picture the first time I heard Raymond speak. I brought him to campus before Life After Life was published, and he gave his account of the research to date up to that point. And it, I just lit up like a Christmas tree. I said, wow, this, this can change human nature. This can change the nature of social, political, and economic systems. And I started lobbying Raymond from that point forward about creating this association for researchers and for experiencers. 
but I was always interested in the systemic implications, you know, how to harvest and harness this information, all derived from robust science to change our perceptions of reality. That's what grabbed hold of me. And I think that's called destiny. I think it's God's purpose for my life. And I, I'm, I'm blessed that I was given all of these experiences to reinforce my convictions. But as I say, I come to this, you know, I have a master's degree. I'm not a scientist. I don't, uh, and, and I'm not involved in scientific research. Uh, but I approach things with the discipline of a scientist. And I, as I said, I'm evidence-based in all my positions. So, you know, for me, we can't pour enough money into scientific research or public education. We already know a lot. I don't think the seven statements uh, that Eternia has uh, promulgated are going to change one iota. They could if if the data warrants that. I don't think they will because I think they're fairly descriptive of, of true reality. And it's enough to fashion highly advanced civilization, much more desirable than the circumstances we currently find ourselves in. So all of these, all of this phenomenology is important, all of it. I love this conversation and I wish we had another hour right now because I know Paul would love to dig in and start talking about the research and the science and we could have another really good conversation um, in the future, I trust. But without another question, without time for another question, Paul, I'm wondering if you have some closing remarks here because John just shared a lot. And if you could just um, give us a few closing remarks in the next minute or so before we have to close, I, I would sure appreciate it, Paul. Sure. I'd be happy to, Julie. And John, I'm going to close out around what you were just speaking about, because I went to the attorney website and went through all the goals and your, your interest and desire for research and the different statements. And all of that you were describing in many ways is one of the reasons I wrote the book science being and becoming. It, it was presenting a vision of what science could be and really should be, and of course, has the opportunity to become that under the right circumstances and to find scientists who are awake enough to really guide it. And that would then help support humanity moving in to really fulfill its destiny, which has a lot to do with what you spoke about today, which is love itself. Yes, thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. John, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Julie. And I want to leave you, listeners, thank you for tuning in with us today. I want to leave you with words from John's book. I hope many more will embrace the certainty of God's existence and God's unconditional love for everyone. I hope it will give more people unwavering knowledge about life after death, filling them with an abiding peace of mind that the afterlife is indeed real, more real than our lifetime here on earth. I'm Julie Kroll. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. This is the Main Street Mystics series with co-host Paul J. Mills. Remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the show, go to your favorite podcast platform. Remember to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Also, 
please consider supporting The Dr. Julie Show at patreon.com backslash allthingsconnected. When we each give a little, we all get a little more. You can stay in touch with me at juliecrawlemail.com. Thanks for listening.